Hey, my friend, welcome to Fine is a Four Letter Word. My name is Lori Seitz. I'm an entrepreneur, mentor, founder of Zen Rabbit, and your instigator in saying fuck being fine. This show is for those of you who are done living with the dumpster fire and are ready to find the tools and courage to transform, to step into more success and fulfillment in both your personal and business life. You're in the right place for stories of self-discovery, gratitude, and connection. And to help you strengthen that connection to your own inner guidance, you'll find each episode has an accompanying meditation. Now let's get into it. We talk about never settling for fine, but today's guest had a life that was decidedly less than fine. From first responder to drug addiction and jail time, Joe Kelly has seen and experienced some seriously difficult times. He learned the hard way, what it takes to turn your life around. And now he shares what he learned through his own company, Obtaining Mastery. His life's work is to help others unlock their potential and achieve true greatness. From the depths of despair to the heights of success, Joe's story is one of resilience, recovery, and redemption. With his book, Badge Bars to Beyond, Joe is here to provide the tools and coping skills to help you turn your life around. So if you're ready to start your journey to a fresh new outlook on life, you've come to the right place. Today's episode is sponsored by Zen Rabbit. If you'd like to find peace of mind amidst the chaos and no matter what's going on around you, you'll find a whole bunch of free resources like meditations and articles at zenrabbit.com. And while you're there, if you're curious about how you might stop working so hard and achieve more success at the same time, get a copy of the five easy ways to start living a sabbatical life. It's a short guide to working less and living better. Find it all at zenrabbit.com. Hello and welcome to Find is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Joe Kelly. We were introduced by a, a past guest, Sabrina Victoria, and I'm so excited that she introduced us because you have such an amazing story and I'm so eager to get into it. So welcome to the show, Joe. Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So the first question I always start out with for everybody is, what were the values and beliefs that you were raised with that contributed to you becoming who you've become? Yeah, awesome. And it's a great question because I think a lot of the values and beliefs that I was raised with, you know, got me to a certain point in my life. And then they stopped serving me at a certain point in my life. You know, so uh, my I'm from North, I'm from the Northeast. I'm from Massachusetts, uh, you know, uh, Boston area. Uh, Cape Cod is where I was born and raised. You know, family was a big part of uh, growing up. Even people that weren't even uh, blood related that were close to the family were aunts and uncles. I have that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we were, you know, we were taught you take care, you take care of your own, you know, and, uh, you know, other people can make mistakes and, uh, you know, (laughs) you might have looked at them differently. But when it came to family, it was uh, blood was thicker than water type of thing. Those were the, what was instilled in me. But also, you know, athletics for me was a big thing. Uh, I didn't come from a very affluent family. Um, a lot of my cousins, and there were a lot of them because I'm Irish, Cape Verdean. Um, and uh, when you're Cape Verdean, we have a lot of cousins. Okay. <laughs> so, 
you know, that was big. That was big as well because uh, everyone played sports, you know, and, and also being from Massachusetts and I live in Florida now, the one thing that I see that's big different when you're taking out of an area and put somewhere else is, and I notice it a lot now is the Northeast, it's a lot blue collar. It's very blue collar. Um, I was taught from an early age that to get a job with that was union, that was union benefits, you know what I mean? Uh, security. And it really didn't matter, you know, the amount of money that you were making. It more, it, it, it meant more to have the benefit aspect of it, you know, and most of my family were all, first, yeah, most of my family were all first responders, you know, and obviously when you get into my story, I mean, I thought I had arrived, you know, and that was the king job for me. My site was always there being a uh, police officer for years, but in Florida, it's quite different, you know? Uh, Florida is more of an entrepreneur state, yes. you know, where it's uh, you work more for yourself. Um, it's uh, not work harder. It's work smarter. You know, so it's it's been it's been a big change and, and a change for the good. So those are the core values is, you know, family, you know, God and, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, working. Yeah. So, and I think it depends on the area of the state. Like, I don't know that we could say like all of Massachusetts and all of Florida, but I of course. have had similar experience. I lived in Florida for South Florida for 11 years too. And, and it is a lot of entrepreneurial spirit there for sure. Yeah. It's, it's nice. I love it here. So cool. So, so this is what you grew up with. And then when you got to be an adult and you were looking for a career, how did that path go? Like you said, you went into being, to be following in your family's footsteps of becoming a first responder. I was going to say, how did you get to the point to choose where you, which, which, which part of first responder you were going into? Well, all my family were mostly firefighters, uh, nurses or this and that. Uh, I had one uncle who was a police officer. My dad always says, you took a left instead of a right because I joined the police department instead of the fire department. Um, but for me, you know, like the, the first question you asked, values and stuff, you know, athletics and family and, and that stuff, that that got me to college on, on uh, scholarships for football and baseball. It, it worked me for a very, very long time. Um, and then, you know, when I graduated college, I mean, the, the I always wanted to do something where I didn't have to sit behind a desk. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be able to use my athletic ability. I loved helping people. I liked growing up the authority figure, you know, as a police officer, being able to actually make decisions and help people, you know, so growing up in that environment and all that talk and my dad's, you know, radio going off in the background and, you know, the excitement of something new every day, you know, obviously as a kid, I didn't take in everything that comes with that. Mm -hmm. I just saw all the glorious type of stuff that goes with it and how it's on TV and all that stuff, you know, little did I know all the extra stuff that comes with it as well. So my first job, my first job was uh, DCF. It was called DSS back then called Department of Social Services. Now it's called Department of Children and Family. I worked there for six months for the state of Massachusetts, working with uh, adolescents and chins, the chins unit, truancy and stuff like that. And then I got into the police academy, you know, so you know, it was a vision from a young, young boy playing cops and robbers, uh, family, family background with that. And then it came to fruition, you know, after six months after I graduated from college. So. And now talk about, cause you just referred to, it's not exactly what you envisioned as a child that it yeah. was. What, yeah. what did you find out? How long did it take you to find that out? 
Uh, very quickly, you know, very quickly. Um, you mean, because, you know, I obviously just wrote a book, it's called badge bars to beyond. Um, and a lot of that extra stuff played into, you mean my fall from grace, so to speak. And, you know, being a police officer or a first responder, you mean, we see a lot of stuff that, you know, ordinary people don't see, you mean, Mm -hmm. I'll probably see more stuff you know, over my years than, than a single person sees, sees ever, you know what yeah. I mean? And that stuff affects you. You know what I mean? It affects you internally, you know, especially if you have children, you know what I mean? Anything to do with kids, you know, whether that is, sure. uh, you know, fatalities uh, of any kind, you know, whether that's car accidents, uh, crib deaths or, or anything else. You I mean, there's a lot of the non-glorious parts of that job that come with it. And it's also, you know, for me, it's stuff that I always stuck inside of me mm-hmm. because as a first responder or a police officer, and I think it's a little bit better today, but then there needs to be a long way to go with it is we're, we're taught to give the help, not ask for the help. Yeah. You know what I mean? In, in these cases, a lot of the times is if somebody does come forward and they, and they're having emotional problems around that, you know, my stigma comes with that too, because you're carrying a gun, you're the authority figure. And they're going to make it out to be that it's more than what it is when we all need to talk. We all need to open up about the things that we see. Otherwise, it's going to get worse and worse. Right. And for me, that's exactly what happened. I was living in my uniform. Um, The divorce rate within police officers is very high, you know, because of what I, I just said. I mean, we see a lot of things. We don't talk about it. We don't make a big deal about it. We think we become immune to it, but we really don't. Those behaviors come out in a lot of different ways. And for me, it came out with being distant at home, you know, distant with with my wife, uh, my ex-wife now, you know, distant with my kids. You know, um, it affects us in a lot of different ways that we don't know how to handle. And all we are taught is just to keep moving forward, Mm -hmm. you know, just to keep moving forward. And a lot of my story you know, badge bars to be on the high level view is I was a police officer who got hurt on the job, got prescribed high, high, high amounts of uh, pain pills because of who I was and my status in the community. They gave me more and more. I became addicted to them. I ended up losing my job over them. Um, and I'll tell you how I lost my job was the chief sat me down and said, you know, we heard some things are going on. He said, if you need some help, and you know, I like throwing this out there because he did offer me the help, but my mental state of mind at the time was, here's my friend who's also the chief of police sitting me down. Now he's at the chief of police position sitting me down, not the friend. And all I heard was tell me everything you know so I can fire your ass. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I heard because now- all that guilt, all that shame and everything else was sitting inside of me. And I was afraid of loss for everything that I'd worked up to that point. Yeah. And you bring up a good point there in that what we hear is through our own filters. Absolutely. We interpret, you know, our own story is running in our head. And this is a big issue when you're talking about communication between other people, you know, communication right. issues, because right. what somebody says and what they mean may not filter through properly because we're looking at it through our own lens. Yeah. Because, you know, basically, 
you know, as we get into it on my trainer and NLP, I do a lot of work with people across the country, but this is what we do is the information that comes in. We delete, we distort, and we generalize information based on, you know, our value system, you know, our upbringing, our experiences and everything else. And obviously when somebody sits somebody down who's under the influence of a narcotic and everything in my experiences up to that point, you mean the fear set in, you mean? So I was, I was prepared, you know, not in a, in in a negative way, but in, in a way to protect my position, my family, my income at all costs possible, you know, knowing damn well, what I was doing was not right. But by that point in this, in my story, you mean, I was hooked. You mean one, I was father of the year when I was on something and I was like pushing a bowl of cereal over when I didn't have any. And the problem became when the insurance companies ended up red flagging me probably six months down the line after giving me all of this medication and the doctors just prescribing and prescribing and prescribing stuff I shouldn't have been on in the first place. Mm-hmm. But they prescribed it and they never told me when they first gave it to me, here, take this and watch out for it. And I didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't. All I knew that was when I took this pill that was the size of my pinky, that it made me be able to go to back back to work faster. It took away all those internal feelings that I was feeling. And then when I didn't have anything, everything that I was feeling prior to ever picking up that pill came back tenfold, like tenfold. Right. And it was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you didn't have any other tools and they were giving you a tool that was serving many purposes, but they didn't tell you the downside parts of it, obviously that you just said that, but yeah. So anytime somebody's given a tool that helps them cope with feelings that don't feel good, mm-hmm. they're going to take it and not want to give it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, and, the resu- and the result of that was, you know, when I got red flagged and I didn't have anything and I needed something now to even just feel normal. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was getting high. I needed something just to feel normal, to be able to go to work, to be able mm-hmm. to be an active member of society, you know, and I did the next best thing. You know, this is where the dishonesty came in and everything else is I would, you know, tell my wife I needed a new bulletproof vest. I needed new uh, boots. I needed a gun holster. I needed this. And then two months later, because I had to pay for stuff from people I knew from high school to get what I needed. And I'd be walking around in the same raggedy old shit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Who am I fooling? You know what I mean? Right. right. She she didn't question that. You know, I think uh, I I had her head spinning in terms of what what to believe and what not to believe because some stuff was I mean left at the station where I changed there and this and that, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 the thing is, is you know, for me, after that, you I mean I, I eventually resigned, forth, forcefully resigned from the job. My wife left me. Uh, she emptied our bank accounts, probably rightfully so, because of the stuff that I was going through. And, you know, I was, I was at a, I was at a position in my life where everyone that I knew wasn't talking to me. The love of my life was gone. My kids weren't a part of my life. All those feelings of shame, guilt, and everything else that, that, that I had done up to that point were hitting me like a ton of bricks. Um, Instead of picking myself up, you know, I got angry and I said, well, I'll show you. I'm like, I've been 10 years or nine years on the job at that point, you know what I've sacrificed? You know, I started pointing the finger. I got angry. And, you know, the next year of my life, 
It was the worst year I, I ever had in my 47 years of my life. I caught so many different charges because I, w- I didn't have any money. I still needed, you know, what I needed to be yeah. normal and to act, not to feel like I was crawling out of my skin and going into, you know, those many times I would put my gun in my mouth, but excuse my language, I didn't have the balls to pull the trigger. Jimmy, you know I mm-hmm. but I did not want to live. I wished every day at that point in my life that I wouldn't wake up the next day. So I had to redo everything that I had to do to get what I needed. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a terrible existence. It was like Groundhog Day, right? Oh, every, there it is. Every day was Groundhog Day of doing things. And I'd always say that I'll do this, this, and this, but I would never do that. And I'd always cross a line, mm-hmm. you know, to get what I needed because Go ahead, uh, no, I was just going to say, I talk about this a lot and it's, you couldn't trust yourself because you were not right. keeping promises to yourself when you said, I'm going to do this. And then you didn't do it and you'd cross another line. Yeah, We break integrity with ourselves when we do things like that. Yeah. You mean, and I was, I was a shell of who I used to be. You mean at that point and long story short, uh, I ended up getting uh, charged with trafficking. I caught, I got caught with 230 perk thirties charged with trafficking. I was a police officer, uh, high ranking police officer who ended up going to prison. I did, uh, uh, two years in, uh, in prison. Um, and let me tell you what, like, uh, two weeks into that stay, I kind of woke up from, you know, everything that's going on. And I said, fuck how, how the hell did I get here? Mm. Like, it was like my life like flashed before my eyes, raised well, college graduate, high ranking police officer within six months, I'm sitting in a cell going, how the fuck did this happen? Yeah. You mean after I had some clarity, you know, and that was the transition. I was away, you know, my, my daughters were everything to me. Um, and none of my decisions, I could say that, Hey, you know, nothing, Nothing is more important to me than them. And honestly, in my heart, that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. But my actions up to that point weren't dictating that because I was so consumed with what was going on on the inside and trying to self-medicate and everything else that nothing else mattered. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I couldn't be who I wanted to be. I have so many questions so, now. <laughs> sure. One, you said in the beginning that family is everything and, you know, blood is thicker than anything. How did your your family beyond your wife and your kids, like how did they respond and did they know this was going on and how did they support you after they found out? Yeah, it's, you know, you read some of the book as well, but my father, uh, she has the same name as me. It was very hard on Mm -hmm. him and he was very strict with me. He, you know, when I went through and got caught up with stuff because of who I was, it was a juicy story to the media. All of my stuff was posted front page of the Mm. paper. So you can imagine being the football, baseball star, you know, and all this. And now for the first time in my life, I wasn't on the front page for good news. It was for bad news, you know, it was all nonviolent criminal offenses, but they were still felonies. You mean anything over $250. So my dad, you know, totally shut me down. He was very hard. He uh, took my ex-wife's side in terms of trying to push I wasn't ready, you know, so I was always trying to manipulate and he wouldn't allow me to manipulate. Mm. So he stood his ground. My mother, uh, my mother would always give me the shirt off her back. Yeah. I mean, she was a huge enabler, but Mm -hmm. I don't say that in a bad way. I needed both. I needed the love and I needed the stillness. But 
as I get older and obviously the stuff that I know, people do the best they can with the resources they have. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And the pro and and that's the resources my dad had, that was the resources my mother had. When I went to prison, nobody visited me but my mother. My dad did not come see me until the last six months before I was going to be released. Mm-hmm. You know, and the big turning point for me. You know, because there's, it's not just about this story. My whole book is based upon, you know, what happens after prison and how to build a life back that to be successful and everything else and all the stuff I did since then. That's just a small piece of me because I'm 47 years old. I refuse. I don't care how society wants to label anybody as a felon and uh, put a stigma on anything. I love the quote that somebody took the same situation you're complaining about and they won with Mm -hmm. it. You know, and I, and I, and when I was in jail, I started to have a little bit of spark back in me of in clarity that I wanted to live. That was my first mm. thing. I didn't want to die. Anymore. Yeah. You know, I wanted to live. And when I decided that I wanted to live, I had to, I had to come up with, you know, what was I going to do? And what I say to a lot of people is, um, I had to reach for, for, for things. I had to do some things that I had never done before. You mean in terms of some personal development stuff, whether that was reading a book, motivational type of stuff. Do you understand? Yeah. I was just going to ask that question. What did you, what helped you, what tools or techniques helped you turn things around? First book I ever read cover to cover. And I, I'm almost ashamed to say it because I was never an avid reader. The four agreements. Yeah. Loved the book. I loved uh, a lot because it, it, it really hit home for me. Obviously, you know, with the traditional AANA, I read the NA, the NA book, the A book. I'm like, oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. But for me, it wasn't so much about substances. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, it was more about the root, the, the underlying reasons of why I was doing those things in the first mm-hmm. place. For me, it was like the perfect storm that happened. And it just happened to involve the substances. So I can relate on a lot of different levels. You mean, and I stopped pointing the finger and I started taking responsibility because there was true power in taking responsibility for that. You mean, when the first month I was in jail, I had a hit list. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. But that changed. You know, jail doesn't work for a lot of people or prison or whatever you want to call it. But it gave me the time I was unwilling to give myself. Yeah. You mean, it gave me, it made me sit with myself. It made me evaluate things. Right. You know, which I could never do before. Yeah. And that's a lot of people have to reach that point. Like my program, my, you know, is called Fuck Being Fine because you reach that point where you're like, right. I just can't do this anymore. And some people get there, I don't know, voluntarily if I, you know, on their own. <laughs> and some people yeah. have yeah. to be put in a situation that forces them to look at it like you were. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. I work with a lot of people that have dependence problems across the country and even high executive CEOs. Like when I wrote this book, this book isn't just about, you know, uh, drug addiction. That's part of my Mm -hmm. story. But it it is it's about, you know, the bankrupt professional, the reluctant divorcee. It's about the fallen leader. It's about anybody that has gone through challenges in life that were unbearing, whether they were uh, publicly humiliated, whether they were just internally embarrassed. Yeah. I mean, whatever it may be, it's a GPS system on how to build a life worth worth living now. Right. You know, and part of my story was getting out of jail, you know, and when I moved to Florida, you know, meeting my wife where I checked 
that ego of being, you know, the emergency response police officer, the athlete, the womanizer, like all that. Check that ego because everything, my values, core and everything else that up to that point served its purpose to a point. It was no longer working. For right. I needed to find other avenues and other ways in order to succeed with all the stigmas of what society and a felon and all that and making life worth living, you know, and that's what I did. My wife was into a lot of different modalities, whether it was meditation, whether it was yoga, whether it was NLP, A Course in Miracles, all that stuff that I said to you, you wouldn't catch me dead in one of those things uh, 20 years. Well, yeah. Because my... Oh, my ego wouldn't have allowed me. And to. it almost did catch you dead. Yes. And, and 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 rightfully so. You know, and I say to myself, I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm a religious man, Catholic, and I believe in God. God brought that woman into my life. Maybe because he knew that for me at first it was, oh, I want to get close to her. You know I mean so I'm like, oh, I'll go to that with you. Sure, no right. problem. Right. But when I went to it, it caught mm-hmm. me. It, it gave me tools um, and NLP, which is neuro linguistic programming, which is a fancy word for the roadmap to the mind. It changed my entire mm. life because I'm a very skeptical person. Yeah. It allowed me to get rid of limited beliefs. And you can imagine how many of those there were. It allowed me to uh, release anger, sadness, guilt. You mean, which I was just a walking throne of all that. And it allowed me to release this stuff. Within a matter of like 90 seconds. Yeah. That's how powerful this it is. It is. It's really powerful. And um, it, it's all of re- the releasing of all of that. I know you'll agree with this is that's what matters. Like that you are no longer carrying it. You can't be responsible for what right. other people are carrying or feeling towards Absolutely. what you experienced. Absolutely. It's about forgiving and releasing yourself from all of those feelings. Yeah. True forgiveness too. Mm-hmm. You mean, because not, Hey, I forgive you. And then like, you know, behind someone's back, right. it's about true forgiveness. Yeah. You know what I mean? And how can I expect people to forgive me for stuff that I've done in my past? If I'm unwilling to forgive other people, you know, and at the end of the day, I can only control what I do. I can't control anybody else. I can't control my wife. I can't control my mother. You know, I try to control my kids, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I can only control me and my response to things. And before in life, you know, when we were talking about values, I was raised like eye for an eye. Like I was the type of guy that I'd see you and you looked at me wrong. I'm like, you got a problem? I had to do a total transformation of who I was because that stuff was no longer working for me. Right. You know, it's the same thing. And I, and I don't like to pigeonhole, even though my story is about, you know, dependence. I help out a lot of people across the country get into different facilities. I do a lot of sober coaching and stuff out there, but I don't pigeonhole myself to that because I'm so vast in so many other ways. Like we, I help, you know, successful CEOs improve their bottom line through communication skills, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of marketing and stuff like that. My true passion is just helping anybody in general, regardless of what they're going through, regardless of what they're facing. I mean, I faced a lot in my life. And the one biggest thing that we have out there, and I think you'll agree with Lori, is coaching. Coaching's out there, but it's so underused because you have to have humility in order to uh, jump into that. And humility is the yeah. ability to ask for help. 
Just because yeah. somebody comes for me comes to me for coaching doesn't mean that I'm any better than them. You mean in life? Right. It just means that I have an expertise in a certain area that they may need assistance in. Right? They may have yeah. expertise in another area that that I'm going to learn from. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And it comes back to your whole thing about humility, asking for help, because whatever thing they're facing at this moment. They just need a hand. Yeah. And a lot of people, you mean, tend to hold on to the problems. And I was one mm-hmm. of them. I was that guy that when I, when I, when I was going through things before I had a change in mindset and everything else, I wanted to tell you all about my problems. I wanted to justify my problems. I wanted to, I would tell the complete stranger, Hey, you know, look at, look at my problems, look at my problems, you know, and justify them. Right. So I can't move forward in life. Like they labeled me a felon. I can't get a job now. What am I going to, you know? Yeah. Well, and then the interesting thing that happens with that is the more you focus on those problems, the more problems you get to focus on because it works the opposite way too, right? When you're focusing on um, the good stuff, more good stuff comes in. I wanted to ask you a question about your move to Florida. Was that because did, were you, I mean, obviously people move to Florida because it's warm and they want to get out of the snow, but, Mm -hmm. but did you move? to get through a change of environment so that you weren't going back to the same environment in the fear that you might fall back into the same old patterns? Great question. So when I first got out of prison, uh, I moved back to my same old environment. I became a, uh, a counselor at a detox. Um, at first I was a landscaper. Right. I did. I took a job landscaping because uh, I really needed to pick up something. I used to hide behind trees when cruises went by because I was so embarrassed. Mm. Right. And then I started to work in behavioral health and that type of stuff. The reason why I moved to Florida was because after about a year and a half of living at home, I knew that I was capped at home because of all of my stuff being through the paper, because of being a star mm-hmm. once in that mm-hmm. area and then all from grace. I had a stigma. I really, no matter how I tried, I couldn't get away from. But the capping point when I was playing around with the idea of moving and I stayed because of mm-hmm. my kids. I had two old, they're now 18 and 16. I stayed and I tried and I tried and I tried, but I could never do anything in a, and escape my past. And I wanted to provide for them. I wanted to do some things, yeah. right? Then I, uh, I was in a, on a boat with my cousin, who was like my best friend, a family gathering. Uh, and we both, the boat unhooked, unhooked from the bottom of the lake. We both were treading. A long story short, uh, I saw my cousin die in oh front my of gosh. me. Oh, my gosh. While we were both treading water, oh. I barely got saved. I sh- There's another part of my life I shouldn't be here. His five-year-old was in the water with a life vest that witnessed all this. And... We didn't find him until the next day. And that was the moment I decided he was always my rock, regardless of what I was going through in my life. He never judged me, try to talk sense into me, my stubborn, my stubborn ass. And, you know, seeing him go under and not being able to do anything about it. I ended up relapsing for a week. Uh, it was too much for me to handle, even though I was going through everything. Yeah. I just, I had no coping skills. I'm like, I was barely holding on as it is, not living the life that I've always wanted to live and getting back in those feelings. And that was a cap for me. I ended up uh, reaching out to a friend in Florida who owned a couple of places and he knew my background. 
And he said, Joe, just, just come down here. I went down to Florida with the intention of coming back to the Cape because my kids were there. It was just time for me to get away, to reevaluate. What am I going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up um, being very successful down here. I ended up working a lot on myself. Uh, I ended up building uh, two multi-million dollar companies. Um, I ended up, Florida gave me the opportunity that Massachusetts was never going to yeah. give me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I took it and I ran with it. But more importantly, before I ran with the career stuff, I worked so very hard on myself. I invested in myself, whether that was personal development type of stuff, whether that was trainings, whether that was certifications. You mean, I just wanted change. And the only way for me to change everything on the outside was, was to change what's going on on the inside. And the reason why I love NLP so much is because it helped me through that process. Just because somebody wants to get certified I, a lot of people come to us to get certified in NLP, hypnosis, time techniques, EFT, or life coaching. And a lot of people come in because they want to make more money. Mm. And that's fine. We And they want the freedom to do it wherever they want. And I love that. That's not what I get excited about. I get excited about the fact that, yes, you're going to make more money and you're going to be able to you know, add to your value. I go, but what I get excited about is what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, when you go through certification for, you know, NLP, hypnosis, time techniques, all that. It's a lot of work that you do on yourself first. The person you come in is not the person you leave. Yes, you're going to have shifts. You're going to have emotional breakthroughs. You're going to, this is the stuff that I work with clients that we're not certified on within minutes, within it's so, I get so excited to see how people change when they come through it and how they blossom afterwards. That it's so very important. I mean, I'm, and obviously you can see it on my face. I, so yeah, I can hear it in your voice and I can see it yeah. on your face for sure. Yeah. So, you know, Florida did a lot for me. And, you know, my current wife, who I'm, I'm be nine years now, we've been married, three new kids, you know, and, and that's what I read. I wrote the book. I made it. You know, it's not a long book. I was never an, uh, you know, a person who would pick up and read a book. And I know most people don't read books cover to cover. I wanted this to be read cover to cover. So I made it short enough where, where, where it wasn't uh, overbearing. It's not going to, you know, somebody who looks at it, doesn't read, they're going to be like, oh, I can uh -huh. read that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a book that tells a little bit about my story, but it also gives tangible tools that you can take away to apply to your life now. And it's an introduction to who I am and what else that we can offer. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, for sure. And in all honesty, I haven't read the book yet. However, it is at the top of my list. I got I got a stack of books over here, and uh, I'm really eager to get into it and and to read what what. And I was very excited. Yeah, I was very excited. It made number one bestseller on Amazon. Not on the bestseller list. Number one bestseller. It was like four weeks in a row. And I think it's still on, still in the top 100, which is unheard. Congratulations. That, that is an amazing, awesome accomplishment. Tell us the name of the book again. It's called Badge Bars to Beyond. It's how I came back from sinning to winning. Um, written by me, Joe Kelly. And you can get it on Amazon. Okay, I'm going to put a link um, to that in the show notes. I'm also awesome. going to put a link to how people can get in touch with you if they want to continue a conversation, which is tell sure. me that. <laughs> you can go to uh, our website. It's called obtainingmastery.com. 
Um, and if somebody wants to talk, you can book a free, a free uh, consultation on the call or even if you just want to talk. You can also find me on Facebook. It's Joe Kelly. Uh, that's my author page. Uh, or you can find me, Joe Kelly, on my personal page. I'm an open book, okay. yes. as you can tell. Yes. All, all my dirty laundry has been aired out over the front page of papers. But here's my big thing, Lori, is I feel, and I, and I truly feel this, that if I can be vulnerable about my situation, there's a lot we didn't cover. And there's a lot that I don't mind talking about to, to anybody. If I can be vulnerable about my situation, maybe that's going to help somebody who's dying silently. You know, and I don't mean to be like, you know, so far left or so far right. It doesn't mean that you have to be dying. It just means that you need to, you know, you have obstacles that you need help with in life. So I have so enjoyed this conversation and I think there's a lot of value out of here. Yes, your story is is somewhat sensational and not to get caught up in that part of it because the the lessons and the the learning from this is universal whether you've been in your position or not. Right. So thank you so much for sharing. Before we go, what is your hype song? The song you listen to when you need to get an extra boost of energy. Uh, for me, it's uh, Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> I'm a big oh, Rocky, Rocky movie guy, you know, so I like uh, anything that's inspir- inspiring and motivational. And for me, that's always been a, uh, a great movie for mine. So anytime that I need a hype song, I'm walking in. I like uh, I like to listen to Eye of the Tiger. I love it. I love it. We're going to put a, a link to that in the show notes as well. So lots of good information in the show notes. Once again, Joe, thank you so much for joining me on Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate you having me. Wow. Joe really got vulnerable in sharing his story here. I didn't bring it up in our conversation, but as he was talking, I was thinking back to Andy Overton's episode at the end of season one. She had been a police officer on a dangerous path as well, although with a different outcome. Here are today's five key takeaways. Number one, acknowledging the unglorious parts of life we choose to pursue is important to avoid a life of regret. Number two, this topic of asking for help and how difficult it is for people keeps coming up. The perceived shame is even greater for those who are used to providing support for everyone else. Joe mentioned his definition of humility as the ability to ask for help. Number three, when you tell yourself there's a line you won't cross, and then you cross it, you destroy your integrity and lose trust in yourself. Number four, understand everyone is doing the best they can with the resources they have. Forgive them. And number five, you can try to control other people, but at the end of the day, the only one you can control is yourself and your response to things. 